one of the key things we need to do is to create the laws and the institutions, the policies that prevent concentrations of power so that we, the people, can actually govern ourselves. And antitrust law is a piece of that story, but it's just one piece, and there's a lot more in that umbrella. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. A lot of people have been talking about whether Donald Trump is mentally ill. I think that that is a destruction for a number of reasons. First of all, they tend to claim that he has somehow mentally deteriorated over the last years. That terrible foe uh, Trump's daily actions in office are, I just don't see any evidence of that. I don't see him having been that different when he was on the campaign trail. I don't see him having been that different 10 years ago. Secondly, I think it is a big political distraction. The 25th Amendment was designed in the aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination to deal with a president who is clearly physically incapacitated. If a president had dementia or was in some other way clearly mentally deteriorating quickly from one moment to the next, I could see a possible justification for invoking the 25th Amendment. But to use it in this way against a president who is much the way he was when he was elected, against the expressed democratic votes of people, I think would actually add to the deterioration of the democratic norms. That is one of the big problems with President Trump's presidency to start off with. That doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do. It doesn't mean that we have to daily live in fear of Trump simply launching nuclear weapons against North Korea, for example. But it does mean that the reforms that we should put in place to guard against his overreaches of power or just his potential rash decisions are ones that should have lasting democratic justification. And making sure, for example, that we have some mechanism for stopping a president who is in a fit of rage or drunk or mad launching nuclear weapons at another country, that is the kind of reform that is sensible and that will pay big dividends even after we have managed to kick Donald Trump out of office. So let's not talk about Trump being mentally ill. Let's not talk about the 25th Amendment. Let's talk about ways of reigning in Donald Trump's power and the powers of other US presidents in ways that do lasting. Today I'm really excited to have Sabil Rahman on the podcast. Sabil is actually an old friend of mine. We went to grad school together. We've debated everything about the world over the last 10 years. But he is a really interesting thinker about the way in which power concentrations can create both economic problems uh, and political ones. Um, he has a great book out called Democracy Against Domination a couple of years ago. Um, he's now uh, an assistant professor of law at uh, the Brooklyn Law School, a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Um, and we had this great, really wide-ranging conversation in which we ended up talking a lot about tech policy, um, about tech monopolies like uh, Google and Amazon and Facebook. Um, that's not at the core of his work, actually, but it's a really interesting application of his wider approach he has um, to how to ensure that um, we take away some of those power concentrations and righten our political system. I had a lot of fun in this conversation. Um, I hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome, Sabil. Thanks, Yasha. It's great to be here with you. Listen, so one of the big rising conversations, especially on the left, but also more broadly in our political system, but we haven't really had that much here on the podcast, is about monopoly. 
right. and antitrust. The feeling that just as 100 years ago, we now have a whole bunch of companies that really dominate a particular part of economic activity that therefore become uh, make the economy less competitive and are able to capture so much of the gains that ordinary people lose out. How would you describe this problem? And let's, let's think a little bit together about what we can do about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think if we step back, a large part of the history of our battles about economic opportunity and equality really turn on this question about concentrated private power. So monopoly is the most glaring example of that, but it's really a broader concern that goes all the way back through our political history. And you mentioned sort of the analogy to a century ago, and I think that's really apt. So if we think back to the Industrial Revolution, after industrialization starting to transform the economy in sort of the late 19th century, early 20th century, you start to see the emergence of a lot of political reform, advocacy, legal transformations around this question of monopoly. And so then the worry was the Vanderbilts, the railroads, Standard Oil, uh, J.P. Morgan when he was a human and not a firm. And in all of these spaces, the idea was really a problem of sovereignty, right? That these private actors seem to have sovereign-like powers over the rest of us, but without any of the checks and balances that we expect of political institutions. Now, fast forward to the current moment. I think a lot of our inequality conversation now in the 21st century has a lot to do with similar worries about concentrated power. And so we might see this in areas like the net neutrality debate, in some ways the debate over the internet platforms and misinformation and fake news and the like, but also really in sort of bread and butter industries, you know, airlines, big agriculture. And in all of these spaces, what you see is not just the ability of concentrated firms to gain rents, as you were mentioning. Well, what do you mean by gain rents? It's a specific economic term, right? So, right, as, as just kind of a classic example, if you have cornered the market on a good that other people need, you can charge whatever you want. Well, above the cost of production or even accounting for you know, some reasonable level of profit. So a rent is often exploiting either a market monopoly or it can be a particular kind of government regulation that basically gives you an unfair advantage over competition. It allows you to charge more than you would if the market was perfectly competitive. Right. But I think the key here is that it's not just about prices. And so you know, this is getting a little bit into the weeds of the history of antitrust law. But there was a change in the late 20th century where a lot of antitrust lawyers sort of came to view the purposes of antitrust law and market competition as really about consumer welfare, right? That the goal is to keep prices low, to maximize the welfare for the consumer. And that's part of it. But if you go back to that early sort of moment around the Industrial Revolution, for thinkers like Louis Brandeis or all these kind of early antitrust reformers, Their worry was really much broader, right? It wasn't just about prices. It was that even if the monopolist sort of benevolently decides to, you know, treat you pretty well just because they have an ethic about it, right, you're still then at the mercy of this arbitrary whim, arbitrary will, right? And that's the classic sort of small R Republican fear of unchecked power. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing now. You know, some of these are too big to fail debate around finance after the financial crisis and the ripple effects that that is still having on the economy is sort of a 21st century version of these same concerns. And it's not literally there about price. It's about influence. So I want to back up a little bit here because this is fascinating, right? But in the end, if you care about rising inequality and you care, frankly, not just about inequality in itself, but the fact that the rich capture so much of economic progress that the living standard of ordinary people has stagnated for a long time and that there's a lot of very poor people in our society. It seems to me there's sort of two very basic visions of what to do about that. And the traditional political logic is simply to say, let the market play out, let these companies do what they want, and there's some regulation and so on, and then we just tax them. 
And then we use the money we've raised for taxation and give it to the poor in the form of welfare and other things, give it to the middle class in the form of public education and social security and things like support for the mortgages. So what's wrong with that? I mean, why is that not the simplest way of doing it? Because it seems to have a very, and there's a reason why that dominates the conversation, which is that it seems much more simple. It's less involved. It gives politicians less power to potentially punish companies or reward companies based on their own personal preferences or perhaps certain kinds of bribes. And it would seem to actually interfere with the market less. So you let all the market outcomes play out and then you intervene to redistribute in such a way to make society more fair. There's a huge current of thinking on the left of basically says, no, 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 that's not enough, that's wrong. We need to think about, pre-distribution is one term of the, we think, need to think about ways in which we actually influence how the market is structured in the first place. What's the basic case for that? The range of stuff that we need to do to tackle the inequality crisis sort of writ large includes a lot of the tax and transfer and social insurance programs that you're talking about. I think what makes concentration an additional piece of the story is a couple of things. So first is that, you know, at the extreme, concentration really destroys even the idea of gains from market competition. In a concentrated market, you don't have competition. And so what that means is not just that you're at the mercy of these sort of monopolists. It also means that there's a huge sort of, if we can put it kind of crudely, there's a huge opportunity cost to a society to that, right? Which is that what about all the innovations that don't happen, the companies that don't start, the jobs that are not created because you have these large concentrated firms sort of occupying the terrain? Let me dig into this point for a moment. We'll return to the others. Why does the market have such a tendency to concentrate? And why might the market have a particular tendency to concentrate right now? I mean, I think this is a point of debate in the scholarship and in the analysis. I mean, I think for some folks, the argument is that there are some industries that just tend to concentration because they have network effects, you know, they have, they're increasing returns to scale. And so... And that'll be especially true for some of the new tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, right? Right. So as a firm, the gains are higher as you become sort of more dominant, more of a platform that, you know, more commerce flows through. So that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is that there's a politics to this, right? It actually, you know, to go back to the earlier point about rents, like, if you can pull off becoming a monopolist, that's really good for you as a monopolist, right? And so apart from the economics of it, there is a, a political piece of some of this. And so this goes back to some of the policy questions, right, that our current moment of increased concentration isn't just a product of technological change or structural transformation to the economy. It's also a product of changing laws, right? We had a certain set of legal tools and restrictions that were in place for much of the 20th century that are no longer in place. And that sort of unshackled a lot of these firms to make this current problem a reality. And so the, it's not just that they tend to concentration. It's We sort of made that possible because of the policy decisions that we took earlier. So that's a, the first set of questions about is you know, it actually reduces markets and the things that we want markets to do, dynamism, competition, innovation. So that seems very compelling to me in the case of Time Warner, you know, you, you don't have any other choice for your cable provider. I think it's clear that cable provision hasn't changed all that much from 25 years ago. Uh, there's a pretty strong case there that it's a bad kind of monopolist, right? What's interesting to me is in cases of some of the tech companies where the cost or the barrier to switching away from them is actually very limited. So in the case of Time Warner, either you want to get cable, you got to go with Time Warner if you live in a particular region or perhaps in a different area, different cable provider, but you have no effective choice, so they can provide you really bad service. You can't vote with your feet other than just forgoing cable service altogether. So clearly there's a lot of innovation that might be being stifled here. 
all of the Google services I use, I mean, literally, it is no cost to me to go to yahoo.com, to go to hotmail.com. But obviously, I go to Gmail. Obviously, I Google things. And the reason, in, in good part, is that the service is a little bit better. So I guess the question there is, can you make the same argument that all of those innovations are being lost when there is actually quasi-competition? There are alternatives that just have much less market share because people keep making the choice over and over again though the cost of switching would be low to Google things rather than Yahoo things. I think there's a debate on this front. It's just how easy is it actually to switch? How much competition is there really in these markets? And so... What I'd say is a couple of things. In theory, it's relatively easy for you to Yahoo things instead of Google things, but you wouldn't, right? And the reason you wouldn't has everything to do with the actual sort of background market power that Google already has. So one reason why Google search is better is because more people use Google, and so they have more data and they can optimize their algorithm better. And so this is that increasing returns, right? The more people that use it, the more valuable the service becomes. And so actually, there is a cost to switching, right? It's not the same good when you use someone else. That's number one. Number two is that the suite of Google services that you're already embedded in, that creates a kind of sort of soft form of lock-in. Not literally, right? No one's preventing you from using, you know, Hotmail, say, but your data and your sort of whole digital life is already so embedded in Google or Facebook, right, that um, it actually is hard to switch. Now, the same is true on the producer side for something like, say, Amazon, right? You actually cannot survive now as a retailer unless you play in the Amazon system. I forget where I saw this statistic, but I think I was reading the other day that Amazon captured something on the order of 80% or so of holiday shopping transactions. Like, that's an absurdly high number. And so... That's the kind of market power that these tech firms operate, right? They've become the literal conduits for information, for social life, for economic life. And that makes them look a lot more like the railroads of the 19th century, right, than sort of the kind of image that we have of tech that, you know, easy come, easy go. So the second piece, I think, that's different about market concentration from sort of traditional areas of social policy is that where we have particular goods and services that are, I think of as infrastructural, right? These are the things that you actually can't function without as an economy or as a community. So that might be things like transit, you know, the, the railroads of yesteryear, Amazon today, but it's also things like, you know, the basic necessities uh, that you need for life, you know, water, housing, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. In those areas, concentration is of particular concern, right? Because the sheer necessity or importance of the good makes you even more vulnerable to the policies, the decisions of the concentrated service provider. And so you can have a tax and transfer, but that's not really getting at the core problem. So if ISPs can discriminate, internet service providers can discriminate behind the scenes what types of data and sites you can access, you can tax them, sure, but you know what you really want is fair and equal access, common carriage, net neutrality, right? And so it's a different policy needed to address that particular problem. So let me jump in just for a second as a detour to net neutrality, because it's something that people feel very, very strongly about, and that frankly I haven't spent as much time on as I should have done. But I've always been confused about a particular kind of thing, because it seems to me that there's very different things that people might mean by net neutrality. So there is one form of absence of net neutrality that seems to me clearly terrible and dangerous, and that is that, you know, Time Warner that already basically has access to how you access the internet at home, that already basically has control over how you access the internet at home, can get to say, if you want to go to Breitbart.com, the site loads bang instantly. If you want to go to TheNewYorkTimes.com, it's going to take a minute to load. 
obviously giving companies and corporations the power to determine what kind of content we can consume in that kind of way would be deeply dangerous to our political system, to our freedom of speech, all kinds of things. There's a middle kind of scenario, though, that would be equally bad. And that's to say, you can distinguish between types of content or types of file. So it's fine to say, look, you know, streaming movies takes up a huge share of our bandwidth. And so we're going to load other kinds of files more quickly. And if you want to be able to stream movie files much faster, then you have to pay extra or have a different kind of deal or whatever. And that I can see how it has certain economic concerns, but it seems to me sort of not nearly as emotionally raw as a first kind. And then there's sort of the thing that I understand that neutrality activists usually ask for, which is no distinction between things whatsoever. So there's sort of these, these three scenarios where you can, you know, completely discriminate, not discriminate at all, or you can discriminate between different kinds of media types. And it seems to me like people who defend net neutrality think that middle scenario is basically as bad as the extreme one. You know, I may be in favor of no discrimination at all, but I think the middle one doesn't seem scandalous to me. It's a complicated issue. I'm not an expert. I don't have a strong view one way or the other. But the way that it's sort of played out in public debate and, you know, on last week tonight, I love John Oliver and so on, is as for that middle scenario is basically as bad as, you know, Time Warner gets to tell you, you have to like read Breitbart. So I think there are two things going on here. One is that you can give a good faith sort of account for why there might need to be some sort of rules of the road, right, as the way you describe it, say, on uh, sort of bandwidth concerns. Okay, fair enough. But the real worry here is that how much do we trust ISPs to actually do that in good faith with no oversight whatsoever, right? So Netflix can offer them a ton of money to get in the fast lane because if they don't, Netflix is sunk, right? They're completely destroyed. This is exactly the kind of rent-seeking situation that we were talking about earlier because once you have that as a possibility, then every firm that depends on accessing users through the internet, which is everybody, has an incentive to try to get in the fast lane. And if they don't, they're in trouble. So that's the first problem. The second problem then related to that is really just this question about accountability and responsiveness. Do we really think Verizon is going to sort of manage itself in the public interest without anything other than their goodwill? Well, but there can be a, the middle road of regulation, right? There can be a regulation that says you cannot distinguish on the basis of politics, you cannot distinguish on those kinds of things. And if you do, then you're very clearly in violation of a regulation, right? And it seems to me like that might have been a deal that stuck. But actually, Democrats, by and large, weren't willing to go down that road. Well, so here, I think this is sort of almost more of a policy design question about, you know, how fine-tuned should we make our regulations versus having them be sort of more straightforward, bright lines. And I think in these types of areas, you know, it's it's hard enough to monitor and enforce blocking and throttling of data, sort of proper versus improper types of paid prioritization. You know, I think having my own view, and I think this is the case for a lot of net neutrality supporters, right, is having a kind of clear standard, which itself is hard to enforce, is much preferable to trying to introduce sort of, you know, the more we try to finely slice it, the more we're depending on the ability of the regulators to make those distinctions. And that's just really hard to do. So I think that sort of two interesting things have come out of this, right? So the first is that the standard argument against net neutrality is just, you know, Time Warner shouldn't be in charge of whether, you know, you can access the New York Times rather than Breitbart. And I actually think that that isn't a strong argument. It's a very effective argument, but it's not a strong argument once you look at the alternatives, right? Because you could, in theory, have regulation that doesn't allow them to do that, but isn't exactly what people 
called net neutrality. Now, there'll be two concerns there, which have been brought out through what you're saying. The first is one is enforcement. It may be easier to enforce a bright line than it is to enforce this sort of slightly more complicated piece of regulation. I'm not entirely convinced by that, in part because I think that the more complicated piece of regulation might actually stick, whereas, as we've seen, the bright line hasn't stuck. So I would rather have a line that sticks but is more difficult to enforce than a line that's then overturned every time Republicans are in power. But the other one is to say that really, actually, the only, in my mind, coherent account for why we need net neutrality is this much wider conversation we've been having before we got to net neutrality about market power. That actually the real reason to care about net neutrality is not Breitbart versus New York Times. It is about the market power of particular companies like Netflix and the wider role that plays within the monopoly conversation. So I think whether or not you should be convinced by net neutrality comes down, not exclusively, but, but quite significantly to the wider question of whether I'm convinced, whether listeners are convinced by your wider account of what's wrong with monopoly power. I think the wider problem of monopoly power in the information platform context of net neutrality or even Google, Facebook, Twitter is inextricable from the question of who gets to access which types of information and which types of sites. So those are one and the same because when you have concentrated control over the media infrastructure, by definition, you now also have control over what types of information people can see. And so whether you're more worried about the rent-seeking behavior or you're more worried about sort of someone sort of quietly curating whether you can access CNN or Breitbart, either way, those are both manifestations arising from the fact of concentration. And that's an illustration of why concentration is so critical as a problem, right, is that it is the deep driver of a lot of different symptoms that we sort of worry about separately at the surface level. And it turns out they're all interconnected in terms of sort of the, the concentration in the first place. So let's assume we buy that really the problem of the world is not just inequality, it's not just huge changes we've had in our taxation system over the last 30 or 40 years, which have channeled a lot more of the gains to the wealthy and so on. And so it can't just be solved by jacking up capital gains tax, by taxing high-income earners more, by being more effective in stopping the flight of company wealth to the Cayman Islands and so on, right? All of that sure should be done. It's not going to be enough. We actually have to think about the problem of monopoly as such and confront that. What do we do? What does that actually look like in terms of legislation, in terms of regulation? And do we have enough of a stick? Because one fear here is to say, well, you know, perhaps the reason is not legal change in the past years or decades. It's that, for example, something like Facebook, you just want to be on the social network that everybody else is on for obvious reasons. And so it's just a market that has a tendency towards monopoly. And no matter what we do, no matter how well-intentioned our actions, say we do the most extreme thing and just break up Facebook into new companies, well, most likely one of those companies would win out and one of those companies would lose out because, again, everybody wants to be on the platform that everybody else is on. And 20 years from now, we'd be back at square one. If we buy the problem of monopoly as a problem, right, I think there are a bunch of different tools that we have historically used to pretty good effect. One is the one you mentioned, which is literal breaking up. You break up the company into component parts and then you now have sort of vibrant competition. You know, I think the important thing there is that that's sort of an ongoing project, right, because exactly as you said, nothing's preventing another monopolist arising in the future. So you have to keep maintaining sort of restrictions on concentration. That's the whole point of having an antitrust law regime. But that's only one tool, right? Another tool would be preventing 
mergers and acquisitions, right, or or at least subjecting them to greater scrutiny, right? There's a lot of debate now in the antitrust law and policy world about, at a minimum, if nothing else, we should at least be looking retrospectively at whether a bunch of these mergers that have been approved by the government over the last few decades have, in fact, generated the types of innovation and consumer benefits that were claimed at the outset. Some really good research coming out suggests that a lot of those benefits never materialized, right? And instead, you just have greater rents appropriated by the monopolist. But at a minimum, we should be at least engaging that kind of retrospective review and then using that to decide which mergers and acquisitions we let proceed going forward. A third set of tools is what we might think of as public utility regulation, right? So here, um, this kind of goes, I think, to the Facebook point um, and to the net neutrality point, right? There are some industries that I think are just hard to break up, right? Because the whole purpose of the industry gets going by virtue of its scale. So this is kind of classic infrastructure type concerns. There, you need a different toolkit, right? Instead of the breakup model, what you need is something like what net neutrality is, which is some public oversight that assures norms of non-discrimination, common carriage, fair and equal access, reasonable rates, all of that kind of stuff. And all of these are things that we have done in the past. So they're possible. There are things that we can sort of update for the present. So what would a public utility be and what would regulation of it look like? Give us an example, you know, perhaps about what would be relation to Facebook or with a more sort of old-fashioned brick-and-mortar type corporation. So, you know, the classic public utility regulation emerging out of, say, the railroads that we were talking about before had a bunch of different elements, public oversight of rates and prices, requirements of non-discrimination and common carriage. I think a big question is how do we adapt those for the modern tech infrastructure and the offline infrastructure as well where it's needed. I mean, what that would look like, you know, if it's in the net neutrality case, it's the FCC that is the relevant agency on the tech platform debate. Some people have proposed creating uh, sort of an equivalent federal oversight body that would oversee these types of regulations. But I guess I'm less interested in what institution would do it than in what would these regulations look like or how actually do you stop these companies from reforming monopolies or from exploiting those monopolies? How would Facebook change, for example? Well, I think option one is you break up the company. Option two is you you say, look, you can exist as a platform, but in order to exist in that form, you have to comply with various regulations like common carriage, like fair access, all stuff like that. So when you think of something like Facebook, how would those things change what Facebook is today? There are a couple things that are challenges here. I mean, so one is first, there's just a really, really big question about whether the First Amendment actually permits a public utility-style, common carriage-style regulation of Facebook and Google. That's actually a really big legal question. There's a huge debate about it. So bracketing that, I think it's in the Facebook platform context, you know, again, I think, you know, the equivalent would be what's a, a sort of search neutrality equivalent to net neutrality, right? So for someone like Google, one of the complaints against Google is that they can put their thumb on the scale of their algorithm providing search results that favor Google-affiliated results or companies, and it's exactly the same kind of concern as if Netflix pays a ton of money to Verizon to get in the fast lane. So you can imagine some set of regulations that provide kind of search neutrality. In the Facebook context, I think there's that common carriage concern with the newsfeed, but I think we also have concerns about, you know, I think of it almost in the same way that we need our water utilities to have protection against contamination, say the problem of lead poisoning in, in Flint or elsewhere. 
the problem of fake news and misinformation is kind of a contaminant, right, of the information flow. But all of this is really hard to do, both for First Amendment reasons and also sort of just practically. So I guess I'm a little skeptical of that in two ways, right? I mean, the first is that it's easy to say, in the case of water, what's a contaminant or not. And I'm comfortable with the government deciding what contaminates my water and what doesn't. It's much more difficult to say in the case of Facebook, what is a contaminant or not. And I'm not comfortable with a government deciding, certainly not well, this government they deciding. Couldn't. They couldn't because of the First Amendment. Because of the First Amendment. Right? But even leave alone the legal issue, there's a reason why I care about the First Amendment. And it's, it's that I don't want the government deciding those things, right? But the other thing, and I'm sorry to sort of keep pushing you on this, is that, again, in the case of Time Warner, I sort of see what the change would be. What I'm struck by in the case of uh, tech companies is that I'm actually probably in favor of this regulation, by the way. I think you're right that you want to make sure that Google can't promote its own services when you search for something over competitor services. I think that's reasonably important. I don't see that it would actually change in a major way what the nature of Google and Facebook is. And I feel like in your examples, it doesn't really paint a, a very clear picture of how much it would change. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not worth doing, right? I think there should be regulation that tells Google that it can't promote its own products over those of competitors. It's just that when you then think back to the puzzle that we started with, which is we have globalization, it's good in certain ways, it also is clearly failing to have the benefits it should for a lot of people domestically. Inequality is rising. Okay, how big a piece of a solution is the whole conversation we're having? I don't know. My sense is still that actually the old-fashioned things that you would think about, like tax and so on, probably matter more. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing or thinking seriously about all of these things. But I guess my question is actually, when you think of the whole big picture, how important do you think the anti-monopoly conversation we've been having is relative to the more traditional conversation that we might have about this? So I think I would want to zoom way, way back out. We've sort of kind of gotten deep into a rabbit hole around tech platforms and monopoly and common carriage and, and whatnot, which is all really important. But to the big frame about inequality, I think a large amount of the inequality crisis turns on these background rules of how our political economy functions. And so part of that is about concentration. Part of that is about the changing nature of work. Part of that is about the way in which law and policy helps the wealthy, you know, not even just the top 1%, but really the top 20% hoard access to future economic opportunity. And this goes to everything through the way our cities are zoned and the way schools are operated and financed and all the rest. And so the inequality crisis is really broad. And the theme of private power sort of runs through all of these dimensions of the inequality crisis. Now, within that, we're talking about one piece of it, which is the monopoly problem. And within that, we're talking about one even sort of further subset of it, which is the tech platforms. Hmm. So with that landscape in mind, you know, I think the other thing I'd say to your question is that I think maybe in some ways the skepticism that you're articulating, it's real, but I think it might be a bit misleading in that as a consumer, right, if you're just a random user of Facebook or Google or Amazon, and we had, you know, whatever the equivalent of public utility, common carriage, and antitrust uh, restrictions in place, how much would your day-to-day -day use change? A little bit, yeah, but maybe not all that much. But that's fine because in a lot of ways, the real sort of threat that 
the concentration in these platforms poses is on the supply side. So the people who are really face the pressure of Amazon's sort of concentrated control of the retail infrastructure, for example, are producers, are small businesses, are retailers, you know, people who have to accept Amazon's terms in order to even exist on the marketplace. So, you know, there are all these great examples, right, about how, you know, Amazon, through its control of the platform, can see some products that are performing really well, then they can come in and introduce their own version priced at a predatorily low level to sort of squeeze out those other competitors, right? So you, the consumer, are not seeing a difference. But on the producer side, that's a real problem. And if we think about sort of inequality broadly, the producer side, that's where jobs are created. That's where wages come from, right? So we have to sort of see this in a broader lens than just sort of what's the end user's experience. I think that's a great point. I mean, I think the question still sort of remains, how is it then easier to rebalance the market? And do you basically just have to have an economy where you have lots of small producers and so on in order to have a middle-class society? Or can you do it on the back end through redistributive taxation and so on? I think there's a reasonable case to be made that it's the former. Yeah, um, right. But, but right. I want to I broaden out a little bit to what the implications of all of this for our politics. Because I think part of the answer, honestly, is, at least for the purposes of this podcast, what should we talk about to beat the populists? <laughs> what should we talk about particularly to beat people like Donald Trump? And there I think, you know, we haven't had major campaigns organized on language around this stuff. I can see the appeal of it. The one thing that right-wing populism has, and that certain forms of left-wing populism, we might be able to discuss that later, have is an enemy. And an enemy is politically mobilizing. You know, saying, well, we're going to tax things doesn't really give you an enemy. But saying, look, there are these monopolists and they're dangerous to us. That is an enemy and perhaps it's very politically effective. At the same time, there's also the challenge that actually some of the most popular entities in our country are Amazon and Google and so on, right? And so I guess I also see real pitfalls for political campaigns that are structured around talking about these monopolies. A, you're going up against very popular entities. B, it's complicated. I mean, this conversation, even by the standards of my proudly wonky podcast, have been pretty complicated. So how do you actually take that and turn it into a political appeal that people get? that motivates people and that can compete with a much simpler enemy that far-right populists like to invoke. I'd flip the framing, actually. You know, this is a debate sort of within the sort of set of folks who are interested in the anti-monopoly question. I mean, I think for me, the starting point isn't anti-monopoly, then how do we sell it to combat a right populism? Look, if we start from the, the problem we're facing now, which is an existential threat to the idea of a multicultural, multiracial liberal democracy in America, that is the crisis of the moment. And the counterpoint to that threat is that it turns out we have a really rich, powerful moral history of trying to create a politics and an economy and a society that is genuinely inclusive in terms of race, gender, and in terms of economic opportunity. And going all the way back, right, for that vision, one of the key battlegrounds of making that real is taking on concentrations of power. Now, concentration of power, that's true economically in terms of market power. That's the antitrust conversation, among other things. Uh, but it's also taking on sort of concentrations of political power and the ways in which that sort of maintains hierarchies of race, class, gender. And so to me, the broader story, which is the one that actually is mobilizing and inspiring a lot of people, including many of the people who you've had on the show, right, is is this idea that, well, if we believe in an inclusive democracy, then how do we build that from the ground up? 
one of the key things we need to do to build that is to create the laws and the institutions, the policies that prevent concentrations of power, that sort of distribute out economic opportunity and political influence more widely so that we, the people, can actually govern ourselves. And antitrust law is a piece of that story, but it's just one piece, and there's a lot more in that umbrella. So that's a great reframing, which I think really clarifies the issue. I guess, and I want to see the link as being as obvious as that. But in certain ways, I'm not quite sure it is, because it seems to me that on the economic front, I mean, I, I think of a cause of populism, as listeners of this podcast know, as being both economic and cultural. I think the opposition between those two is too easy. Recently, I've started to think about it actually as different modalities of causation. So I think actually the economic causes may in certain ways be deeper and longer standing and help to explain why people have so little confidence in the government, why there's so much anger in the politics, and then the form that this usually takes is cultural with white backlash and the rise of a new form of an older racism and so on. And then social media is a thing that sort of facilitates that. So you have at least the economic piece of it and the cultural piece that you have to solve. Now, I think on the economic piece, big corporations that have monopoly power are clearly part of a problem. They are clearly one big reason why ordinary people don't have improvements in the living standards, why they are angry at the political system, and you really have to think about how to change that. Now, on the cultural side, it's far less clear to me that corporate America is the problem, right? I mean, I'm sure there's shortcomings there. I'm sure that every big corporation could do more famously, there's more CEOs in America called John than there are, I forget whether it's women or, you know, women and 17 other things put together, right? But still, I mean, you go into the big corporations in America today, those are hardly the places in the country where discrimination is most ripe. And that's especially true of some of the newer tech companies and so on. And so I'm not saying there's no problems there, but relative to some small businesses, frankly, where probably you have much more discrimination and relative to, to politics, relative to many other spheres of our lives, I think quite self-consciously most of those corporations are trying to contribute to solving the cultural piece of that problem. Just as a quick sidebar, it's interesting because uh, one of the tensions here is that Silicon Valley is actually the most male and most white among the industries and sort of internally the least diverse, even though it sort of do plays kind of a culturally liberal role in some respects, right? Externally. Right, right. The policy side of this stuff is, you know, complicated. Like any policy you dig deep enough, it gets complicated real fast. But to me, I, I mean, I guess I still really believe that the values and moral side of this is not complicated at all. You know, and if you think about just what we've experienced in the last few months with the tax bill, right? In a sense, I mean, it, it's very clarifying, right? Because, I mean, what you have here is you have a, a set of political actors who are so committed to extracting wealth from everybody else that they are willing to not just tolerate but fuse with the sort of blatant revival of white supremacist politics at the highest levels of our government. And so I agree with you that this is sort of the, the cultural and economic or the racial and the economic division is, is far too facile, but it's not just that it's too facile. I mean, I think the fact of economic extraction and inequality is intimately interrelated with the production of racial and gender hierarchy and has always been, right? And so it's not a coincidence that, say, the most radical moments of democratic and egalitarian vision in American politics have taken both of those on at the same time. So the abolitionist sort of attack on slavery cross-fertilizes with the rise of ideas of free labor and sort of radical republicanism in the mid-19th century, right? The Civil Rights Act, sort of the, the second reconstruction of the 1960s, 
very quickly suffuses deep structural critiques about inequality and the changing nature of work with racial justice. And, you know, you go back and you look at what folks like, you know, Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King and uh, a lot of the civil rights leaders were talking about. It actually rings very familiar to the debates we're having now about basic income, changing nature of work, precarious work, inequality. These are sort of have always been deeply related. And so for thinking about sort of what's the prospect for uh, a progressive populism, right? Or what's the response to the kind of really problematic exclusionary right-wing populism? To my mind, sort of it's always has to be some kind of direct attack on these systemic forces that reproduce the hierarchies that sort of uh, affect us all. So I know that you're obviously a political thinker, legal scholar, and so on. So it's an unfair question of you to ask. But, you know, having asked you many questions in my life and never having seen you stumped by any of them, I feel comfortable <laughs> uh, throwing this uh, hardball at you. What are these slogans? What is that language? I mean, if you were standing on the stump in the campaign, how do you talk about all of these things in a way that communicates to people and that makes them optimistic that they can have a better economic future and solve all of those other problems at the same time? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is the the real challenge facing progressives, liberals, sort of really anyone who is engaging in politics at this moment. And look, I'm not a campaign manager or communications specialist, right? But, you know, I think that, look, part of what is exciting to me, even bracketing sort of the daily anxieties of the Trump era, I think part of what's exciting to me is that I think we're seeing a very real bottom-up energy and attempt to sort of build a movement and a set of narratives around exactly these themes. It's not a coincidence that the day after Trump's inauguration, you have the single largest day of organized activism in American history around the Women's March. And that the Women's March itself was self-consciously projecting a vision of a multiracial, democratic, inclusive America. That's incredibly powerful. And that is bubbling up from all parts of the country and of the political spectrum. And I should say, look, these questions are not new. Like there have been people, you know, who have been organizing and advocating and sort of thinking about these questions going all the way back. And so it's not that we're starting from scratch, right? We actually have a, a rich tradition to build off of, but it's that now it's that much more urgent, right? To try to scale that up and, and expand that more broadly. And so, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of that really sort of gain traction in, in different parts of the country. I know I'm saying a lot today that I'm torn, but I think it's because it is a topic on which I am genuinely torn, right? Let's think for a moment tactically. You're on the board of Protect Democracy. We had Ian Bassin on here in a previous episode. I think they're, you know, a fantastic organization. They're one of many organizations that really try to focus in a sort of bipartisan way on protecting the most basic institutions of our democracy. And I think the one thing that should be clear to anybody who cares about protecting votes, that the first priority in 2020 is to get rid of Donald Trump, right? But as long as somebody who's so clearly, proudly, consistently hostile to basic democratic institutions just will do tremendous damage to our ability to organize any kind of politics like that. Now, I think there's two quite different theories of a case about how to get rid of him. One is to say that the drivers of populism are deep, that this provides a unique moment to galvanize opposition to Trump in a form that can then put in place quite radical reforms and actually start to get adverse drivers of populism in a serious manner. And so we should nominate somebody who's going to talk the language of anti-monopoly, perhaps it can be sort of different other languages that are competing in that space, 
But that is quite radical. The other instinct is to say, it's so important to win that the way to maximize the chances of winning is to put somebody up who doesn't scare anybody, who is reasonably moderate, and that actually the story of the 2016 election was very different because in 2016 you had eight years of Barack Obama. People, you know, didn't want just four more years of the same thing, even though they liked Obama. You know, so you had to offer something more exciting. But at this point, people are going to get mobilized anyway because they hate Trump sufficiently. And what a lot of people in middle America want is not a particular policy change or a new ideology that's going to be controversial and that's going to try to remake the country. They just want somebody where they say, you know what, I vote for that guy or that woman and I can just forget about politics for the next four years. Now, perhaps that's somebody like Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, perhaps for somebody like Oprah Winfrey, but it's somebody that sort of makes middle America comfortable and allows them to sort of feel, you know, for the next four years, we're just going to take it slow. Now, I'm generally torn between those two things because I think there are clearly deep drivers of populism unless we confront them, we have a real problem and post-2020 seems like an obvious moment to confront them because it is often after those very dangerous moments in politics that suddenly open space is possible. I mean, it's after the civil war that you get reconstruction, which is historically bizarre, but it sort of makes sense. I mean, it's after World War II that you get the attempt to construct a united Europe and so on. So 2020 might actually in certain ways be a real opportunity, even though it doesn't seem like that now. But on the other hand, I also think, shouldn't we just nominate the least scary person to maximize our chances of winning against Trump? So, I mean, it is a tough question. And, you know, and I should say, you know, obviously my thoughts are speaking for myself rather than for Protect Democracy, which I think is uh, doing phenomenal work. But it goes to your broader point, which is that the crisis of American democracy today is so severe, right, that there's sort of an immediate short-term need, which is to win in the upcoming elections. And then there's sort of a much longer-term question about what to do about these chronic sort of structural problems of inequality, exclusion, democratic erosion. So I guess I'd say a, a couple of things to this. I mean, one is that in some ways, the answer is to just, you know, let many flowers bloom, right? One read on, on what went so wrong in 2016 was that we sort of didn't have a fully robust debate about what the future of the Democratic Party ought to look like and that we needed to have that, right? And that we're sort of ripe for that. So, you know, I think it's dangerous to try to sort of ex ante narrow the field of who the standard bearer should be even though I totally share sort of the anxiety that, like, we really have to win this one. But I also am not totally convinced that some of these structural changes are as controversial as maybe you're framing them. I mean, the vast majority of the country agrees that our economic, social, and political life is rigged against them and that this is a problem for liberty and for democracy and for equal opportunity. Where we disagree, right, in some cases deeply, is about what to do about that. There's this really bizarre dilemma where people hate, 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 hate Congress, but they like the congressman. And I sometimes wonder about whether that's the same with the political and economic system, right? I mean, they hate the political and economic system for good reason. They think it's rigged against them. They think so too. Once you start actually wanting to change any particular piece of it, suddenly status quo bias sets in and they're like, well, well, I don't know that we should mess with this or that or that, right? Well, I think this kind of goes to one of those longer term challenges, which is that, you know, even with the short-term need to win the next election. I think in the long run, we need to sort of think about progress and social change as something that doesn't depend on any one standard bearer, right? There's sort of a gravitational pull to seeking a silver bullet, to seeking that singular individual who 
can unite everybody, transform the country for the good, drive progress by themselves. And that's just not how structural social change happens, right? It's not the great person, you know, who leads from the top. It's, you know, what's happening brick by brick and block by block. And so I think, and you look, in a lot of ways, what happened in 2016 was that a lot of deficits came due. Our civil life and robust sort of democratic sort of civil society had been eroding for a long time. And inequality had been increasing for a long time. And, you know, problems of racial and gender exclusion had have been chronic and structural going all the way back, right? And so all of that came to head in one moment that then sort of felt cataclysmic as a result, right? But to me, what that says is this is the short-term, long-term sort of cognitive dissonance in a way, right? We we really need to be thinking short-term about winning the next election, like every single next election. But at the same time, how do we do that in a way that builds that long-term sort of civic infrastructure that allows us to have these debates and tackle these challenges going forward, right? And that means, you know, knocking on doors and building on the, the sort of upsurge of community engagement that we see all over the country, right? People are worried and angry and upset and mobilized. And that's a tremendously valuable and important thing for a democracy to survive. That is as good a concluding word as any. I'm looking back at over my notes, and I think we've uh, managed to cover about a fourth, a quarter of the topics that, that we aim to. But obviously, that just means that, that we'll have to have you back on. Um, It'd be great to be back. And thanks for all the work that you're doing on this podcast and uh, everywhere else. It's, uh, it's a great inspiration to a lot of us. Uh, thank you, Seville. And it's a pleasure to finally have this conversation on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Make up a Good Fight logo and put it on lots of merchandise, on t-shirts, on cups, on big slabs of stone and sell them in an online store. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.